Welcome back to the Neuroverse podcast. I'm your host, Magnus Hedemark. We're back in the Neuroverse this week uh, to talk to a new guest you haven't heard before. Before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about where we are with show support. As you know, if you're um, a longtime listener, this show is listener supported. We don't run ads here. Uh, we probably won't as long as the listener supports keeps coming in. Uh, we're doing that through Patreon. I'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, most folks are donating about $5 a month. I'm not asking you to do it if you don't have the means or the interest, but if you have the means and the interest, it really does help out a lot. Uh, our patrons do get early access to the show, uh, and some exclusive content and, uh, some sneak peeks of what's coming. So enough about that enough paying the bills. I'm, I'm really happy to uh, introduce our guest this week. Uh, just a little bit of an introduction. Uh, I, I don't know our guest. I haven't been following our guest on social media, but because of the viral nature of social media, I started getting some content in my own newsfeed uh, from other autistic people that I follow that are liking and engaging with this one piece of content. So there, there's this fellow, this tech entrepreneur. I, I don't know if I should say tech entrepreneur, media entrepreneur, I guess. We'll, we'll, we'll clarify Probably that. Probably media. Media. Yeah. All right. We'll see. There he is. Um, so Jeff, Jeff Ulrich, am I saying that right? Yeah. Ulrich. Yeah. Ulrich. All right. So Jeff Ulrich, uh, had, had a video that I'm going to include with the podcast in its final form where he basically, he announced, uh, to the world, Hey, I'm autistic. There's a little bit more to it than that, but we're going to talk to Jeff about his story. So Jeff, welcome to the show. Welcome to the Neuroverse. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. So, Hey, it's been a heck of a year for everybody. 2020 has just turned everybody's lives upside down, but you had a really pivotal moment in your life this year, didn't you? Yeah, I, I was evaluated at a neuro evaluation at UCLA in December. And then on January 8th, I was diagnosed uh, as autistic, ADHD, uh, global anxiety and depression. And I had never received any kind of diagnosis uh, around anything like that in my entire life. Uh, I'm 46 now, but I was 45 at the time. So it was definitely, um, a big thing to kind of kick the year off with. Yeah. I was only aware before we started recording this episode, I was only aware of the autism diagnosis, but we know the intersectionality of autism is, is just amazing. And, uh, <laughs> neuroverse really does give with both hands. Yeah. So, uh, in your introductory video, when you're, when you're telling your followers and friends, um, uh, back in September, Hey, I'm autistic. You mentioned that there was a whole story about what life was like before that diagnosis. And I remember for myself, I was diagnosed late in life myself. And I think that first year was an amazing year of reflection, trying to understand, uh, my life that had come before through that lens and trying to get my bearings about where I wanted to go next with my life. What was that like for you, that reflection? How, how are you seeing your pre-diagnosis life? Well, I mean, I'm still in it. You know, I think I am coming up on like a, a nine months since my diagnosis. And I'm still in this process of a lot of therapy, a lot of conversations with friends, a lot of writing. And it's just, it's a lot of heavy duty lifting around um learning about the community and about myself and trying to understand the past and trying to understand what it means for the future and yeah, i gotta be honest i was not prepared for how much this would impact me um i mean i was pretty it was kind of expecting it you know when i first um went to get evaluated I had a few things that I thought maybe like, I was like maybe 5% chance that I'm autistic, but I was interested. And so 
as I started, you know, I, I set up the appointment, which is like, you know, a three month wait. And in those three months, I spent a little bit of time paying attention to things. And by the time I showed up to the meeting to find out what their diagnosis was, you know, I was probably 60, 40 that I was autistic in my head. You know, I would have been a little bit more surprised if I wasn't than if I was. And I was really excited. I was looking forward to it. You know, I'm almost nine years sober. And I guess I kind of assumed that it'd be very similar where, you know, at the end of my days of drinking, it was dark, you know, it was a lot of lying and a lot of uh, self-loathing and very similar to a lot of other alcoholics. And you get to a point where you feel just so uh, isolated and lonely and that no one else has ever drank like this before and no one else understands and you can't talk to anyone about it. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll be able to join a community where it'll be like joining a program where I showed up and there were all these people who could support me and who I could support. And I could feel like I'm just like everybody else. I'm not special. Like all alcoholics go through the same stuff and feel connected. And I thought, you know, this will be great. You know, I'm going to learn about myself. I'm going to be able to join a community of other people who are similar to me, who can support me. I can support them and I'll understand myself better. But that's not the way I felt when I left that, that room, you know, it, it, you'll understand, but most people don't, you know, imagine being 45 years old, sitting next to someone who's known you since preschool, who you've been married to at the time for 10 years and, and a stranger who's a doctor who spent 12 hours with you over three days, a month prior. And to have that doctor, that stranger explain how your brain works, how your relationships work, how your feelings work, how your marriage works, how your friendships work, you know, with you over a two hour conversation in ways that are more, you know, profound or, or intimate or true, more, more true than any conversation you've had in your life, including with the woman sitting next to you who's known you for over 40 years. And it's a jarring experience, even if you're sort of expecting it. And even if you're looking forward to it, like I was. And I think that, um, you know, another thing that made it really hard was my, and, oh, I want to qualify before I continue. I'm really nervous about speaking publicly about being autistic because I'm not quite confident in my understanding of the language that I should be using yet. I mean, I've spent a lot of time trying to educate myself, but I don't feel like I'm 100% there. And I, I do know that there's a real sensitivity around people speaking publicly and having it seem like they're trying to speak for other autistics. And I want to be very clear, I'm not trying to do that. I just want to share my own story and I might get some of the language a little bit wrong and I'm happy to, to learn. Um, but so the doctor said in multiple ways to me that my profile was very different and unique from what they would consider to be the general like autistic population. And, you know, I'm aware of the phrase, like, you know, one autistic person, you know, one autistic person, like everyone's different, but they presented a picture of me Basically, you've got these people who are experts at this stuff. You know, UCLA is one of like the world-renowned institutions in terms of studying and, and working on um, neuro issues and diversity. And, and they're like, we've never met anyone like you. We've never evaluated anyone like you. And the doctor actually said, like, I would be shocked if you meet another autistic person that you can relate to. And so... I like left that room really feeling down, very like, oh man, here I thought I was gonna join this community. And I was just told that I'm unlike any other person they've ever diagnosed and that I shouldn't expect to be able to make friends who are autistic. Um, you know, it was hard. Is there some way you can elaborate on what the doctors were finding that 
they felt set you apart from other autistics? Yeah. I mean, I, I won't speak for them, but basically the gist of what she said was that my, my verbal intelligence score was like 99 plus percentile. So there were other parts of me that also contributed to like a unique profile, but basically that one thing is, is very unique again, according to what they're telling me and the consequences of having that be the thing that is unique about me, it impacts all of your life in ways that, you know, it allowed me probably to get jobs that other people who are autistic might not have been able to perform or get hired into. Um, It allows me to have uh, relationships with people that are different because of my verbal abilities. Um, It allows me to mask in in a way that's different from other autistic people. And so, like I said, like I, I'm going I'm terrified to say this stuff because I don't want it to make it seem like I think I'm special because I, I, I don't necessarily think I'm special, but I do now with all this time I've spent and spent a lot of time just on Twitter and, and lurking for a long time and learning, it does seem like my lived experience for a lot of reasons, not just for that one, but for a lot of reasons is unique. It doesn't, it's not better or worse. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that if you are someone who was born in 1974 and you have exceptional verbal intelligence, you have not been evaluated by a neuropsych to determine whether or not you're autistic. It wouldn't be something that would occur to you. It wouldn't show up uh, in your life the way it does other autistic people. Um, Time and place, you know, like in the 70s and 80s, nobody, nobody was looking at, at this stuff, especially not someone who presented like me. And so I don't think that I am universally unique, but I think maybe I'm pretty unique within the group of people who identify as autistic. I'm, for those watching on YouTube, I'm grinning from ear to ear right now because it almost sounds like you're telling me my own story. Really? I was born in the 1970s, early 1970s, was evaluated, you know, late in my, my adulthood and similarly had verbal skills through the roof. You, sir, have just met another autistic sesquipedalian, but I try not to be too ostentatious about it. Yeah. And <laughs> so I, I guarantee you there are verbally gifted autistic folks out there just because the UCLA folks have not seen them. We're out there. You're not alone. You are not an alien on a strange world. Uh, well, thank you. And I, I believe that, which is why I wanted to come out. Part of the reason why I wanted to come out and really just kind of try to um, become part of the community and meet other people that are that are like me or or similar to me or different from me, but that uh, I can be supportive of. So. I'm, I'm dumbfounded a little bit because like y- your experience is reminding me so much of my own from, uh, a, a little over 10 years ago for me, like you, I'm with a partner that has been with me most of my life. They've been a part of my life for most of my life. So I wonder about, uh, like in this first year, how are you seeing your relationships differently, both with your partner, with friends, with family, are you seeing those relationships through a different lens now and understanding past experiences in a different way? Yes. Um, my relationship with my wife is, has always been good, but it's better now. Um, I think that she's learned a lot about the way my brain and my body work. Uh, that helps her to understand things that know something that maybe was hard for her before isn't so hard anymore. So like, I just have like the hardest time washing pots. Like I can do dishes. I don't, I we're very clean. I have no problem going to the kitchen and cleaning the dishes, but like, I just, I don't, I don't know. I can't wash pots. And like that used to drive her crazy. 
Like, why would you clean everything and then just leave these pots for me? Can't you just, you know, and I didn't have an answer. Uh, and, you know, so like now she cleans the pots and she doesn't get mad. And she has made just like some very small, some much bigger accommodations for me that she's happy to make are easy for her that a year ago would have been something that maybe wouldn't be a problem in our marriage, but just something that would have like put in a little bit of friction that, um, that would have caused some trouble. And, you know, it's like my whole life, I, I, people always said that I was like Tom Sawyer, you know, I would, I would always like get other people to help me do things or to, to do them for me. And Darlene has known me my whole life. And so she, she was a part of that. So my, she's someone I convinced to do some weeding in my parents' backyard in college when I didn't want to do it. Um, and it, so she understands that I've, that I've always been a certain way and that now she understands why I'm that way. So in that regard, it's been great from her coming to me. And then the reverse is that I'm better able to explain what's going on with me through the lens of something that now makes more sense to both of us versus before when I was just constantly subverting and masking and not knowing that that's what I, I had no idea that the way I was behaving or performing was different from who I was or from the way other people were in their lives, right? I had no clue. Um, you know, I, I oftentimes will like have, uh, they're not daydreams, they're not fantasies. It's basically just like preparation where I will imagine conversations in my head with people before I have them. Oftentimes people I don't know, they're like, I'll be like, oh, if I ever, if I ever met President Obama in an airport, like, what would I say? You know, like, like pre-scripting like your that. responses to potential questions. Yeah, just like yeah. being super ready for scenarios that are likely and scenarios that are super unlikely. And I just, I thought that that was just normal, right? I mean, it's not something you go around and ask people like, so what were you plotting to say to President Obama if you ever ran into him, you know, at an airport, which by the way, you, you never would. Um, and so you start to learn how you constructed this like autistic scaffolding around your whole existence to help like prop you up in a way that allowed you to do what you need to do. And as I've learned more about what that scaffolding is, and in some cases just like um, took it down, I've been able to communicate to her what's going on with me, which obviously is huge for any relationship. So uh, some, something else you mentioned earlier and, uh, I, I felt really badly about it at the time. Your, your early interactions with the autistic community, uh, I, I see that you've already noticed that we can eat our own kind. Um, and it can be a little bit of a scary place to enter if you don't know all the right language and, and the right words to say and when to say them. And, I only wanted to call that out because I know I've got a good cross section of listeners and this is a great example of why we've, I think we've got to give each other more grace, um, just to be able to have different lived experiences, to be able to, you know, come into our own understanding of what it means to be autistic. We're not all born with that knowledge. We don't all get a childhood diagnosis. Sometimes, uh, after the, the gray beard starts coming in, so to speak, uh, is when we just start thinking about these things and I don't know, I just, I, I hope anybody listening to, to this can empathize and maybe think twice about how we respond to new folks entering the community and, um, how we react to perceived faux pas in conversation. Um, hopefully you haven't fallen victim to that. I mean, no, I mean, cause I haven't been public for very long. And so I, I just have a fear of what I've seen and read, not 
uh, a lived experience of that. But, you know, I think that I appreciate you saying that. And, um, you know, like I got sober at 37. I don't think that I'm a better sober person or a better person in general than someone who gets sober at 50. Like I just happened to come to it sooner than they did. And we're both where we need to be. I also don't feel like someone who got sober at 25 is a better person than I am. And I kind of feel the same way about stuff like this, where if someone's showing up and earnestly is like looking to learn and grow and participate, I think we, you know, the community will all benefit from meeting that person where they are and being helpful in in making that kind of on-ramp for them because, you know, it, it could be two years from now, whoever that person is that you helped kind of acclimate, that person could school you in what ableism is as it relates right. to being autistic. You know, like we're all on different kind of speeds and different time frames. And, and speaking of like ableism, like I was raised to be ableist. You know, it yes. wasn't until again, I was 45 years old that I found out I was disabled. And then I started educating myself about what that meant. And I realized like, oh my goodness, like I've been part of the problem this whole time. And I'd much rather somebody say, great, here's three books you should read. Let me know if you want to talk about it. than to say, you know, something a little bit more negative or less welcoming about how there's something wrong with me that I didn't already know that. And, and anybody from our community that thinks they're fully woke is, is just kidding themselves. I mean, you might get a good idea of what your internalized ableism looks like and think you've got it figured out. And I guarantee you, you're, you're going to keep learning new things about yourself 10 years, 15, 20 years down the road. And the, the only way we're going to get on together as a community is if we give each other room to learn these lessons at our own speeds. And as you say, like meet people as they are, where they are. Yeah. So where do you go from here? You've, you've been spending a lot of time learning about yourself, about your own history in a new light. And I'm sure, you know, you're playing out these scenarios in your head. Like you say, what do the future scenarios look like for you? You know, is it okay? I actually don't think I did a great job of answering your first question, which is what has it been like since I was diagnosed? Is it okay if I Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Let's go back for a second. Um, because I feel like I'm in a pretty decent place right now, but um, you know, I'm not a fan of of kind of people who are only sharing the things that make them seem a certain way. Um, so like I really struggled. Um, the first, let's call it two months after my diagnosis, I had been working on starting a new podcasting business and I was in like an exploratory mode. I hadn't committed to doing it, but I was working nonstop, a ton of, you know, red eyes to New York all the time. And so when I found out, I almost didn't even let myself kind of take a a beat, you know, it, for two months, the only processing I did is basically the processing I did in the room with that doctor and my wife for two hours. And when I kind of came out of it, and I decided, you know what, I'm not going to start this business. Um, it was a really great business and it was super viable and it would have been very successful, but I decided to, to, to walk away from it. And in the moment, I didn't really understand why. And it was probably about three weeks later when I realized that like, I'm really bothered by this diagnosis. And if I had started that business, I would not have been able to do any of the work that I need to do for myself in order to you know, move forward. And I, I was kind of able to three weeks <laughs> retroactively understand that the reason I walked away was because I knew I needed time for myself. And from there on, I started doing hard work. And I mean, at one point I left my house for a month. I told my wife that I needed to be somewhere where I could focus on myself. She's 
understanding. And she's like, well, you know, we're going to be together for the rest of our lives. So one month for you to go and invest in yourself seems like a good, a good way to That's spend time. huge of her. Yeah. Um, and, and it was great. You know, it was hard. Um, I did at least a one hour phone call every day with a friend. I did, you know, five AA meetings a week. I did meditation twice a day for 20 minutes. I wrote, I, like I said, lurked on Twitter, reading what autistic people had to say about their lives. Um, even when I was on my downtime, I was like reading exciting times um, by Noise. I, I don't know how you say her. Is it Noise Dolan? Um, she's an yeah. autistic novelist from Ireland because I wanted to, even if I was kind of relaxing, I wanted to be kind of amongst the community. Um, I watched Love on the Spectrum one night. I just kind of plowed through all the episodes. And that night, it was probably like 2.45 in the morning when I finished. I, that's the first and only time that I've cried um, as it related to my diagnosis. And it was so powerful. And I know a lot of people have problems with that show for various mixed bag, reasons. Ups and, and downs. It's a mixed bag. But for me, in a very narrow sense of being in this Airbnb that was one room, two miles from my house, and seeing people who are like me represented on TV for the first time in my life, it was really powerful for me. And it made me realize how much I didn't understand about myself and about the life that I had already lived. And, you know, I just kind of kept at it every day. I just do a lot more, you know, more work, more work. I, I started writing the experience I had of the day I got diagnosed almost as like a novel rather than as yeah. like a journal to try and make it a little bit more fun to write about. Um, and so I've spent a lot of time in, and I still am um, less so now because I'm home and I'm with my wife and my daughter and there's lots of stuff to manage with our lives and whatnot. But um, it, it was dark there for a while. And I would say that I had two weeks of the worst depression that I've ever had in my life right before I left for that Airbnb where I felt like my identity had been completely blown to smithereens that I didn't know who I was, why I made any decision I had ever made, why I had said anything I'd ever said, why the body language I use is the, I mean, I it's just like a deconstruction. No who I was. Yeah. It's like we spend our whole not knowing who we really are. We spend our whole lives building up a mask of what we think we're supposed to be. And then that first day when, when you get the diagnosis, it feels like I finally have an answer. And then when you start digesting the answer, can it be like, no, I wasn't given an answer. I was just given much more profound questions. Yeah. So it's funny because I relate to that in a way, but it was in the, in the room with the doctor when I was already there, I, there was no part of me that felt like this was some sort of a relief or, you know, I have a lot of like smart, thoughtful friends who all kind of had not great responses <laughs> when I told them. Yeah. And, you know, I got a lot of like, Oh, isn't that great? Like knowledge is power. And I would say, well, you know, historically in my life, I have felt that way, just like you right now, it feels like a burden. It does not feel like power. Um, I feel like I have all this information that I have no idea what to do with. And it just leads to so many questions that I don't know how to answer. I mean, you know, part of the conversation that was had with me and the doctor for my diagnosis was that um, she explained to me how my emotions work for the first time. And she said, you know, do you ever feel like you have headaches or stomach aches, or maybe you feel like you're getting sick, but you don't really get sick, or chronic fatigue. And I'm like, yeah, all of that. I'm like, as I sit here right now, my fingertips are so sensitive to the touch, like I couldn't possibly type on a keyboard right now. Right. It's so painful. 
And I'm like, that happens to me all the time. And she's like, well, we estimate, and obviously this is an estimation, that your brain processes about 10% of the emotions that a neurotypical person's brain would process. And the other 90% you're experiencing on a cellular physical level. And so when there are certain emotions that you feel that are hard or difficult or bad or stressful, um, it's likely to show up with sore fingertips and feeling exhausted and having a, a headache and it was like mind blowing to me. Like that, somatic processing. Yeah. When, whenever I've had, and it's luckily for me, it's been not very often, but whenever I've had a very difficult, serious conversation with my wife, within moments of starting it, I feel like I've been drugged. I feel yeah. like I need to go to sleep immediately. I can't keep my eyes open. If I tried, like it feels physically impossible to continue to engage. I had no idea what was going on or why. And so she's explaining this to me. And then she said, um, you know, your verbal intelligence is so high, which I already mentioned. And, you know, it's very unique and blah, blah. And it's likely contributed to like the way you get through the world. You probably have used your verbal skills to navigate right. things that you otherwise wouldn't. And then she said something else that was pretty fascinating. She said, you know, there were three people who were a part of my evaluation, three, three doctors. And she said, all three of us had the same experience with you in the room. We all, we really liked you. We thought you were funny and smart and charming. And we really enjoyed like the reciprocal conversations that we had with you. We've never evaluated anyone like you before. And then this is going to sound very familiar to you because we've been on this call for probably a half an hour and I've talked a lot. Um, she's like, but then when we watched the video, cause I'd given them permission to video the, for research and for, for teaching purposes. She's like, we could not believe that the experience we thought we had with you was not the experience we had at all. We didn't have reciprocal conversation with you. You dominated us for 12 hours and it was either you talking or you leading us to the thing you wanted us to talk about. But like you were in charge of three people who do this like every day for a living and you didn't, and we didn't even know. She's like, do you feel like you talk a lot? And I was like, oh my God, my whole life, all I've wanted to do is shut the fuck up and I just can't do it. And so I'm learning all this stuff, right? It's the end of the meeting. And I, I asked her a couple of questions. I wasn't trying to be cute were clever. I was very interested. And I assumed that she knows what she's talking about. And I said, so who am I? Am I me? Or am I the person I manipulated myself to become so that that person could manipulate the world to accept me so that I didn't feel physical pain while engaging with people? And she's like, I don't know, like, you need a therapist for that. Like, no one's All ever right. asked me that. I have no idea. And I was like, okay, fine. Let's put away the who am I? I'm like, what about this whole thing about dominating conversation? I said, do you think it's possible that I've engaged in extreme risk-taking behavior my entire life so that I would naturally be interesting to people and they wouldn't pick up on the fact that I'm talking so much because if I don't get things out of my head, I'm going to have like a headache. I'm going to like physically have pain in my body if I don't get it from my head into the world. And she said, you know, you're kind of blowing my mind right now. That makes a lot of sense. But like, again, you're going to have to do a lot of introspection and work with a therapist to try to figure this stuff out. But, you know, so that's what I say when I say like my entire identity was kind of blown to smithereens. It was like, I'm sitting there asking these questions and there's no answers. Yeah. For, for, for my own experience, I was like taken down to nothing, did not have the benefit of therapy. And in the process of trying to figure out who I am and who I want to be, I actually bifurcated into two personas for, oh, for wow. a time by, by day, Magnus Edemark. I'm, you know, I was an engineer at IBM and by night I was somebody else. Uh, I, I still was at a stage in my life where I wasn't sleeping through the night. I was only getting two to three hours of sleep, 
So I could literally live like two lives every day. Yeah. And wow. I would live a whole life as this other person. I, I worked as a bouncer in a rowdy nightclub. Uh, I t- picked up a camera and started becoming a, a fine art nude photographer, headlining art shows. Uh, I've got, I've got IMDB credits under this other persona, uh, for doing visual effects work and joined a traditional motorcycle club, which took years, like getting patched in and all of these things were an exploration, just trying to figure out, yeah, who am I behind this mask that I've constructed over like my entire life? How do I untangle that, the mask from the, from the real human? And part of that meant having to take these extreme risks that you're talking about and, and really just learn a lot, intentionally learn a lot of the social behaviors that neurotypicals will um, have instinctively. So like from the experience as a bouncer, had to learn a lot about how to navigate um, really critical situations where I did not have the upper hand. So I'm, I'm six foot two. I'm, I'm like 300 pounds, but that makes me kind of like taller than average and fat. That doesn't make me like really tall and strong. I'm not a fighter. So I'd get into these situations where somebody's like six, four, six, six foot eight, even full of muscles, getting rowdy and drunk, I had to figure out a diplomatic way to deescalate and get them out. So I learned a lot about that uh, from the experience as a photographer. Working with nude models, I came to find out that neurotypicals mask too. And when they're in certain situations, very intimate situations like that, I mean, if you're around another person and you don't have your clothes on, frankly, that's a very intimate situation and the mask falls away. And I come to find like these models are very different people in that situation than they were in, in the more public persona. Right. And then finally in the, in the motorcycle world, I had to learn a lot about looking for the unwritten roles of a society. Like if you're going to hang out around hell's angels, you better understand how to conduct yourself in a way that shows them the respect that they expect, or you're going to get hurt. And I came to find like what I saw as chaos on the surface was really very ordered, very orderly, very ruly, and not unlike um, the society of feudal Japan, like samurai society, which nobody would expect. So it's just to say that like after this first year, there's so many things a lot of us autistic folks have to do just to answer that critical question. Who am I? Who, who will I be? And ultimately, yes, I had to converge back to living as just one person again, which was probably even harder than bifurcating. Right. <laughs> yeah. That does. That sounds probably would have like been would be cheaper to go through therapy. Yeah. <laughs> Oof. When I started doing my work, I had four different therapists at, at once. And before I was diagnosed, I had no therapist. So I definitely leaned in to, to therapy. And it, I, I've been glad that I've done it. Good for you. But yeah, so I just wanted to share that it, it, it was challenging and it still is at times. But I think that I am in a place now where... I no longer identify as neurotypical, which is a big thing. Uh, one of us, one of us. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, but I still don't know how to be autistic. You know, I kind oh, of, doing great. I, I feel like I'm in this kind of like in between space where I no longer identify as neurotypical, but the world still mostly does perceive me that way, even though I've come out and said otherwise. Most, you know, I get a lot of like, you don't look autistic or <laughs> yeah. if, if, if you're autistic, then that means I don't know anything about autism because I true. would never have. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, 
to think about how I came out to friends, a small group of friends, when I first found out, because I told people that I was getting evaluated and that I was going to be getting the results. It wasn't a, a secret in that regard. And I thought it was funny at the time to only tell people after I made them guess as to what the diagnosis was. I was like, I'll tell you, but you got to say, do you think I, I'm autistic or not? And it was, you know, trying to put them on the spot and give them a hard time. But I think also it was, I was really curious as to how people saw me because I didn't know that they could see me any way other than the way I thought I was. And it was a lot of people who said, I, I would be surprised if you were. And I was like, okay, well, I am. And so, you know, it's this process and I've, I've met some other folks who are autistic now, a couple. Um, yeah, I have mutual friends with uh, Amy Schumer and her husband, Chris, was recently diagnosed. And so um, I had some people put us in touch and we've had a few calls and that's been nice. And um, Tell Gadsby, to come on the show. <laughs> I, yeah, Hannah Gadsby is um, also someone, mutual friends, and uh, I've had a really oh, yeah. good time. I've done a couple uh, calls with her. And then Drew uh, Savicki, yeah. who I think you follow on Twitter, um, he and I have had, had a couple chats. And so, you know, it's, it's just kind of like baby steps. Um, but my goal is, to use my voice and my whatever resources I have to try and be of service. Um, I think that, and you'll, you'll probably be able to relate to this. Um, it seems like people are just scared of the word autism yes. and scared of the idea of autistic people. Yes. And I think that I could probably carve out a fairly narrow niche that could be really valuable to the community where I'm basically like the safe autistic person that you're not scared of that you shouldn't be scared of autistic people. But like, since you are, let's call it what it is and develop maybe, maybe a podcast or write a book, but basically kind of carry this message of what you thought you knew is probably not true. And maybe I can help you understand that. Um, you know, I, I've had some success that makes certain people care about my story. And so I'm, I, I have a bunch of friends in Hollywood who are more than happy to, um, share and amplify my story. So I think I'm in a fairly unique position to talk about what, it, what it was like to be neurotypical and then what it's like to actually be autistic and that transition in a way where I can advocate for other adults who maybe don't have the same access that I do right. um, or for kids of parents who are neurotypical and they're getting all their information from neurotypical doctors and therapists and teachers who maybe aren't doing a great job of helping them actually understand their kid and what they need. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. I think the future is learning as much as I can and seeing if my hypothesis that I could be helpful in that fairly specific way is true. And if it is do it. And if it's not figure out a different way to be helpful. Yeah. And I think the intersectionality, if, if I were to offer some, some advice, unsolicited advice, that intersectionality yeah. is a huge thing. Like it's not just autism. When you said ADHD, like that adds equally important dimensions to everything you're learning about yourself and everything that you could potentially be advocating ADHD by itself, big deal. Autism by itself, big deal. You put them together, pow, it's, it's, it's big. And, but it's a common intersection. And when the you talk about your I've verbal skills, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I get, I get where I was getting to was when you talk about like your, uh, very high verbal aptitude, a lot of that might be the gift from the ADHD side. Right. And so the, the, the autism and ADHD are playing together, right. giving you unique challenges and unique abilities. I shouldn't say unique, but uh, unique to the intersection of those two. Right. 
The reason I've been kind of focusing on autism is just because it feels like ADHD is misunderstood, but, but familiar to people. So if you say that I'm diagnosed with ADHD, somebody will be like, oh yeah, I saw three other friends of mine on right. Facebook said the same thing yesterday. They don't necessarily understand what it means, but there's like this familiarity that it doesn't, it, people aren't necessarily interested in learning about that, at least in my experience. But a lot of people are interested in understanding autism and why I'm autistic and all of that kind of stuff. So to me, it's, it's if, you're, if you're looking to raise awareness and be of service to a broader stretch of people outside of the 50 friends you tell, then it seems like talking about autism is the thing that more people pay attention to. And then also bringing ADHD and everything else into the conversation, right. they'll then be more open and willing and interested. So let me give you an example. I was talking about how, how I was kind of living my life as, an, as someone who was ableist, right? You know, I think one thing I'm kicking around is the idea of creating like a 10, uh, 10 episode series where it's me kind of like outing myself as an ableist and learning about how to not be ableist because I'm, it, it's like, you know, it, it likes being a self-loathing um, whatever, where it's like, I'm disabled and I don't understand how I should treat other people who are also disabled or how I should look at the world in a way that it makes it safer and less harmful for people who are disabled. And so my thinking is that I can bring in people who are neurotypical, who are super ableist, who won't feel judged or um, condemned because I'm raising my hand saying, hey, we're all starting from the same place and I'm gonna go on this journey to get better because uh, I have a good reason to now. Um, why don't right. you join me? Awesome. What what format do you think this might take? Uh, it sounds like you've got a lot of background in podcasting. Is, is that kind of where you're heading? Yeah. I started a company called Earwolf, which is a comedy podcasting company in 2010. And then I started a company called Midroll in 2000 and early 2013, late 2012, I guess. Uh, and then I sold them in 2015. So I, I was in podcasting for five years. Um, I had a non-compete that just ended a couple months ago. So I have not been engaging in that um, since, but it is, it's a really great medium. It's very intimate. I know how to do it. And so that's definitely attractive. I also have some friends who are documentary filmmakers. It might make sense to do something that's visual also. Right. I think that um, there's so much still of like, this rain man myth or like <laughs> stereotype that I think actually having like autistic people on camera and you can see them and how they move through the world and how they speak um, would probably be helpful to a lot of people who, who don't necessarily understand um, what it's like to be autistic. And um, then there's also, you know, there's books. Um, so I'm kind of, I don't even know, like, I'm still in autistic burnout from the five years of starting and building my business, you know? So I say this and I have good intentions, but there's days where I just, I can't do the work. It's too hard. And Amen. you know, if I, if I'm on with my therapist, like I need to take a nap when I'm done, you know, it's exhausting. So um, I'm not committing to anything because I sure. don't want to disappoint, but I've been recording every conversation that I've had about my autism um, with all of my friends and all of my therapists for like two and a half months now. And I don't know, maybe there's something in there, maybe, maybe not, but um, it's been fun to document it and to be able to go back and learn because I don't always remember everything in the moment, which is probably part of my ADHD. Maybe at some point we'll, we'll have to put our heads together. Sure. That'd be great when you're up for it. All right. Is there anything else you want to share before we close out? I don't know. Is there anything you want me to share? Something tells me that you're going to be back and you're going to have a lot more to share. 
and I'm looking forward to that. Thanks. I'm definitely in fairly early days of the journey. Yeah. So I hope, I hope I keep growing and learning. I, well, it never stops. Take it from, um, yeah. I don't know, 12, 13 years in and it's not stopping. It's not slowing down. And the answers to the big questions come in the form of bigger questions. Right. So it's a very, I, I think it's a very philosophical path and uh, very reflective. And I think what I wish for you, if it's anything like the path that I took, I think um, diagnosis is the catalyst to becoming a better human being. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that there was anything wrong with who you were before, but no, I, I'm not offended. <laughs> there's always, there's always room to improve. And I think that that constant reflection and adaptation and iteration uh, forges us into just better and better human beings. 100% agree. Jeff, thank you so much for sharing your story on the Neuroverse today. Tell, tell us how can people follow you and stay in touch with your story? Yeah, you know, I mean, right now I'm just pretty much on Twitter. I haven't put out a podcast. I, I don't have a website to, to have anyone do anything. So um, it's Jeff Ulrich or at Jeff Ulrich on Twitter. And that's kind of it. I have a private Instagram that I don't, um, I don't invite anyone who I don't personally know. And I'm not really on Facebook. So Twitter is the best place. Twitter is the me. place. All right. I will have your Twitter link in the show notes for anybody that wants to follow Jeff. And Jeff, as your story develops, when you feel like you're ready to you know, make that next step, get back in touch. We'll have you on the show and, and, and talk about it. Sounds great. Thank you so much for reaching out and making this happen, Magnus. So to my audience, thanks so much for taking another trip into the Neuroverse with me. I just ask, please make room for one another. Be kind to somebody today who can't do anything for you with no expectation of anything happening in return. I think you put something good out there into the universe and it's a closed system. It's just going to keep making everything better for you and for the people around you. So be well, be kind, stay healthy, and we'll see you next time.